Well, good morning again. Um, we, uh, we have a special day today. Today is, uh, we've got a, a child dedication. We have a, a baptism and a church picnic. And uh, so if you're, uh, uh, if you're able to this afternoon, love to have you join us uh, and follow us over to the, the church picnic. Um, so uh, we are going to be dedicating this morning uh, Duster and Runner, uh, um, Ryan and Alyssa's children. And I wanted to share with you uh, what it means to dedicate versus baptism, since we're doing both today, and, uh, the, and the difference in, in our tradition here. So we, we believe, as Christians, that every good gift comes from God. Uh, that's James 1.17. Do, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from God the Father. Um, and, uh, and we also believe that we are made intentionally with, with a great purpose and, and that children uh, are a gift that have been made by God and given to us. So when we dedicate uh, children to God, we're just giving him back what he's already first given to us. As so many other things, sometimes we, we give uh, various things to God, but we're setting apart and saying, these children, it's our desire to, for them to follow you. Now, baptism, in contrast, every time we see a baptism in Scripture, it's usually someone that's being, um, that is an adult, that is, uh, has a, a significant event in their life. We see Jesus coming into their life, the power of the Holy Spirit, turning from sin towards new life in Christ. And so the, the visual of that is being submerged into the waters of death like Christ was and coming out into new life. Uh, so that's what we do doing later today. Now, it's been my tradition to uh, be able to write letters to uh, children who are being dedicated here. So uh, I'm not going to read both of them, but I will read Runner's letter. Um, so this is this is the letter to Runner. I hope you're listening, Runner. <laughs> On June 9th, 2019, your parents dedicated you to the Lord. It was my privilege to take part in that dedication, and it is their intent and hope that you will live a life honoring to God and that you will find your deepest joy in Him. As we live our lives, circumstances can sometimes be challenging. God loves you and made you for a purpose. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. I encourage you to trust Him, to love Him, and to seek Him. I pray that God will bless you with an abundant joy and faith in His goodness that he will establish the work of your hands. Love, Pastor Kevin. So these are the, the letters here, and I'll give them to you now so I don't forget. And safekeeping. And, uh, and then we're going to, so the way this works is we, uh, we pray. The parents will pray first, and then I'll pray. And then we have a charge, and we believe that, uh, that uh, the raising of kids uh, is a uh, uh, responsibility of the parents, but it's also sort of our corporate responsibility. And any of you have been here long enough, kind of seen these kids running around, we kind of help parent each other's children a little bit. So there's, there's also a charge to the congregation. So uh, if you want to go ahead and, and uh, pray for, uh, <laughs> he's making a break for it. Yeah. <laughs> Father, thank you for giving us Duster and Runner. They are gifts that we willingly and gratefully give back to you, dedicating them to your glory and service. We promise before you and this congregation that with your help and guidance and theirs, we will both model and teach God's word to Duster and Runner. We will seek to introduce them to Christ. We will pray faithfully for them, and we will be sure that we as a family will be accountable to other believers in the church. 
Heavenly Father, we trust you with Duster and Runner, our precious children. Our Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to bring back to you these children that you've given to Ryan and Alyssa. We uh, pray that you give them wisdom and grace uh, to Ryan and Alyssa as they uh, face the challenges of parenting. Uh, we ask that you would strengthen them spiritually and provide for their physical needs uh, as they raise these children. And we pray for Duster and Runner that as they grow up, that they would know you and love you, uh, that they would be godly man and woman who, in whom you can be glorified, that you would establish the work of their hands, Lord, captivate their hearts and give them beautiful feet eager to share the good news of Christ. We pray this for your glory by the blood of Jesus, the power of your spirit. Amen. So these are the charges. Um, so uh, Ryan and Alyssa, uh, do you promise in the presence of God and your friends, uh, your family, this church body, to do the best that you can to instill in Duster and Runner the values and teachings that will lead them to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Uh, do you promise to entrust Duster and Runner to God's care and offer them to God in his service and ministry? If so, say we do. Um, and then congregation, do you, friends and family, uh, members of LifeSpring uh, Community Church, promise before God and one another that with God's help and guidance, you'll seek to support these parents as they look for duster. <laughs> um, with your prayers as they seek to fulfill the responsibilities to duster and runner. Uh, and do you promise to help them raise and love Jesus and serve God by committing your time, resources, encouragement, counsel to guide them in the ways of godliness? If so, say we do. We do. All right. Um, then um, we, uh, in the name of God, we, we dedicate these children, duster and runner. He he's, hey, duster, come here. <laughs> I'm sorry, runner. All right. We, we've, got, we've got containment going on here. Um, but we, uh, we dedicate these children in the name of God um, to his care and uh, under their parents. All right. Thank you so much for coming up here. You guys are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, church isn't uh, perfect, and that's, that's a good thing. We're, uh, we're not up here trying to be perfect. Um, all right. So we are going to uh, change gears. And uh, we're going to be jumping into uh, the, our series on First and Second Kings. So if you'd once more just bow your heads with me. Um, Isaiah 55, 1 through 2 reads, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters. And you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend your money on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Father God, we need you. <clears throat> we need your son. We need your spirit. We are dependent upon you for all that we are and all that we have. You are our God, our sovereign Lord, the lover of our souls. You are unchanging and never-ending, and our hope is in you. You offer living waters and a heavenly feast that's been paid for and provided by your son, Jesus Christ. Let each of us respond to this generous invitation with a, with a yes. We're not worthy. We fall short in every way, but by the grace of God, we will come to the table. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are your church. We receive your invitation, and we come without anything to commend us but Christ. God, we lift up our community to you. Help us to represent you well in this place by caring for those in need and loving people well. 
Let many people in this community be blessed by the church and also respond to your invitation. And now as we open your word, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we might learn and grow and follow. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this is the sixth series. There is actually seven Sundays in this series. So this is the sixth out of seven Sundays in this series on kings and kingdoms. It's based upon the books of First and Second Kings. Uh, question, do you believe that these books of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, are in any way important to your faith? Do they even matter? So I, I hope we can answer yes, and I hope we'll even uh, be able to answer that even more positively yes by the end of our time here together this morning. <clears throat> the reason why we are spending time in First and Second Kings is to help us understand these historical books of the Old Testament and to provide background to the New Testament. Uh, history recorded in Kings has bearing on what we believe and how we ought to live. Therefore, these books are important to our Christian faith. Think of them as a foundation. The foundation is not what you see when you look at the house, but the foundation is, is what the rest of the house uh, stands on. This is sort of what the Old Testament provides for the New Testament. Now, today is an end of sorts. We do have one more uh, Sunday in this series, but today is really um, the end of Israel. Uh, First and Second Kings have a two-part ending, and uh, today Israel is conquered and exiled. Uh, hurrah, it's going to be an exciting morning. Um, the story of Israel's demise can be found in Second Kings uh, chapter 17. Uh, next week, we'll find out what will happen to the southern tribes of Judah. Now, we can think of Israel's exile as a death of sorts. And when a person dies, a lot of times we'll have a funeral or a memorial service. We have something to remember them by. And uh, the, um, by the time of, let's see, where are we at? Um, as we're thinking about um, the exile of Israel, we want to think of it in terms of a memorial. Now, you see, uh, Israel uh, will never again exist as it existed uh, in, this, in, the, in the chapters of the book that we have read about. Uh, it will, uh, we, we have the modern nation of Israel, which is different from that. Uh, there will be Samaria, um, but, uh, but the people of ancient Israel uh, will in the future uh, be regarded by the Jews as half-breeds and adulterers of their faith. And so something significant uh, dies at this time. And so if we were to conduct a memorial service, we would start out by thinking, uh, how do we remember uh, the deceased? How do we remember the one who's died? How do we remember Israel after it's been exiled? Um, and so we're going to take a look at Israel briefly from birth to death and remembering how Israel was born. So Israel was born of a promise. Israel was born of a promise. A promise that unfolded over the course of centuries, and this promise uh, began as a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, and this is it. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, here's the promise, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the promise. Uh, God promised 
to make Abraham a great nation and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, if you remember, Abraham had two famous descendants, Isaac and Ishmael. Which one of these, Isaac or Ishmael, uh, did the nation of Israel come from? Who, anybody think it's Ishmael? Well, Isaac? If you, uh, yeah, it's Isaac. So the nation of Israel goes through, uh, goes through Isaac. And, uh, and Ishmael and his mother Hagar were sent away. Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. Abraham had other descendants through Keturah. None of them were, dis uh, were chosen either, only Isaac. The promise went from Abraham to Isaac. Uh, and it was passed down from Abraham's son Isaac to Isaac's son Jacob, also called Israel, who had 12 sons, who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God's promise went through them through the 12 tribes of Israel. In particular, we learn later through the tribe of Judah. And we can uh, fast forward that a little bit. So we can see that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. That's the trajectory that, uh, that the promise went through. Now let's stop just a minute and remember something. Um, let's remember who the promise of God did not go through. So for the promise of God to go through Isaac, it necessarily did not pass through Ishmael. It did not pass through any of Abraham's other descendants. And then um, if, we, if we follow it a little further and we see Jacob, Israel, well, Jacob had a brother named Esau. The promise did not pass through Esau or the nation uh, that came from Esau, which would be the Edomites. The, the promise did not pass through Edom. So God chose some to be heirs of the promise and others not to be. So what about these other nations? Does God care about them? Does God care about the nations that came from Ishmael or, or Abraham's other descendants? Does God care about Edom? I, wanna, I want us to hold on to that thought for a little bit. Does God care about the one who's not been an heir to this promise? Um, so the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob eventually went to Egypt where they were enslaved. God released them from captivity under Moses and then established them in the land just as he had promised. This is a summary of a, a huge section of scripture. Now, after the, the tribes of Israel were established in the land, they asked for a king. And the first king they received was King Saul, but the ultimate king, the king that every other king was compared to, the prototype for all kings was King David, that's right, King David. Uh, so King David received the promise given to Abraham. So it went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob through Judah to King David. And just as the nation was founded on a promise, the kingdom is now established on a promise as well. And we said in a very important text for us is 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we won't read the whole chapter, obviously, but 2 Samuel uh, 7.16 is sort of a summary here and it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God promised to build David's house. And he would provide a descendant who would sit on the throne forever. And Christians believe that this son of David is ultimately this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, excellent. So it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And so that's the trajectory. It goes from David to Jesus Christ. But here's the kicker for the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, if we remember what happened, there was a split that occurred. So there are three kings in the United Kingdom. There was Saul, there was David, and then the kingdom split after Solomon into the kingdom of Judah and Israel. And the promise is not going to flow through both of those nations. It's only going to flow through one of those nations. And so if we were to say which one of those nations, it's Judah. Where does that leave Israel? It leaves Israel without the promise. The northern tribes don't have that promise flowing through them. So now we look at Israel's legacy. Remember, we're, we're in this memorial service. We're remembering how, how Israel became, but it doesn't look promising from the very start. The promise is not, they are not heirs of the spiritual promise. The northern tribes are not. It flows through Judah. And then we look at Israel's legacy, and that's not promising either. Uh, when we examine the history of the tribes of Israel, uh, the Bible makes no attempt to gloss over the ugly truth. Israel's first king, Jeroboam, uh, decides that he doesn't worship to flow through uh, Jerusalem in case the nation comes back together again. And so he makes two golden calves, puts them in two different places, and has the people worship sort of this messed up religion in the northern tribe of Israel, and that's how it begins. And then we have King Ahab and Queen Jezebel who really promoted Baal worship or Baal worship. Uh, people pronounce it differently. But, uh, but all these idols and idolatry come into the nation of Israel. It gets worse and worse. And then because of uh, injustice and because of the idolatry, the prophets come into Israel and they start speaking into the situation saying this is not good. And they, they speak the truth into Israel and the, the nation of Israel, the kings and queens, end up killing the prophets or, uh, or, or uh, harming them, torturing them, all sorts of things. Persecution happens to the prophets. They don't listen to them. And then, to make matters worse, kings came into power through assassination and military coup. So injustice was rampant. Uh, idolatry flourished. It was... Um, if we were to hold a funeral for the nation of Israel, it'd be like one of those, I don't know if you've ever been to one of those funerals or memorial services where there's a person who really had a checkered past and, uh, and people want to say good things about them. They're looking for a few good stories. A couple of people stand up. They try to tell a couple of good stories. And someone finally stands up and says, hey. And they start talking about the truth of this person's life. And it wasn't pretty. Well, that's sort of what the Bible does. It says, you know, uh, if we look back on the nation of Israel, if we truly remember Israel as it was, it wasn't pretty. There were uh, no doubt good stories along the way, but the overall trajectory was not good. They were plagued with idolatry, injustice, bad government, their kings and queens led them astray. And Israel also met its end uh, for this very reason. It conducted itself towards God uh, with idolatry and towards people with injustice. So the end of Israel was even worse. Here are the last six kings of the nation of Israel. Zechariah reigned six months and was murdered by Shalom. Shalom reigned one month and was murdered by Menahem. Menahem reigned 10 years and was followed by his son, Pekiah. He didn't die. Well, Pekiah reigned two years and then was murdered by Pekah. 
And Pekah reigned 20 years and was murdered by Hoshea, and Hoshea reigned nine years until Israel was exiled by the Syrians. So the normative way for a king to become a king of Israel was to murder his predecessor. And some of them didn't last very long. Who would, you're like, who would even sign up for this job? You're going to get murdered by, your, by someone behind you. And then when they murder their predecessor, they usually knock out the family and, and friends and maybe a couple villages too. So it's, it's a pretty rough scene. Well, in 727 BC, Shalmaneser V succeeded Tiglath-Pilazar. Five years later, he was succeeded by Sargon II. So there's turmoil taking place in Assyria of which Israel was a vassal state. And so King Hosea thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to break away from a from vassal state of Assyria and we can be independent again. And so if you go to that next slide here, here's what happens. Um, Israel is a vassal state of Israel. I'm sorry, uh, Israel is a vassal state of Assyria, but they go to Egypt and say, hey, would you guys help us break away from this vassal state status? But it doesn't work out so well for them. Hosea gets imprisoned and the Assyrians come and they just utterly destroy Israel. 2 Kings 17.4, therefore the king of Israel shut Hosea up, bound him in prison, then the king of Assyria invaded all the lands and came to Samaria. For three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, carried the Israelites away to Assyria, and placed them in Hala and on Hebor, the river Gozan, and the city of Medes. So imagine a foreign nation coming to us right now and destroying our country and then taking us and sending us to a land that we had not known, where they spoke a different language, and then bringing other people here who spoke a different language, had different customs. They live in our house, they use our schools, and everything gets mixed up. Would our place that we live in here ever look the same again? It wouldn't. Can you imagine if lots and lots of people from another land came here and took over some of our houses, our schools, and they intermix, they intermarry, we would never look the same again. We'd be different. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They were completely changed. I think, well, why did this happen? Why did this death take place? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 17, 7, it says, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and had walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and the customs of the king of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. Because of their idolatry, because of the way they acted, God judged them. Um, so the rest of the chapter, the rest of, um, of 2 Kings 17 is devoted to explaining why Israel fell and the nature of that fall. But the lasting memorial of Israel is one of idolatry, rebellion, stubbornness, abandoning God's word, child sacrifice, and injustice. That's the memorial to the nation of Israel. 
2 Kings 17.24 records how Israel intentionally mixed with the nation of Israel ethnically, what I was talking about. The king of Assyria brought the people from Babylon, Kuthoth, Ava, Hamath, Severfame, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And then there's a really strange incident that takes place. So after all, uh, people of Israel, some of them have been deported, new people have been brought in. There is this incident where lions are coming and attacking people there in Israel. And, uh, and so the king of Assyria th uh, is told, you know, that the God there in Israel isn't like our God. We need to send one of the priests back there in order to teach the people about the God of Israel. And so he complies. And this is actually uh, a normal thing that sometimes happened historically. They would send a priest from the people back to that land. They do that. And uh, what was the result of it? Well, in, uh, in 2 Kings 17, 33, it says, So they feared the Lord after this priest came, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations among them who they uh, had been carried away. And then there's another summary in 1740. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this very day. These people are referred to as the Samaritans, the northern tribes of Israel, as they have been mixed up with everyone else, are referred to as the Samaritans. And these are the Samaritans of Jesus' day eventually. They are a people of mixed ethnicity and adulterated religion, and the Jews detested them. In fact, in John 8:48, when people are trying to deeply insult Jesus, they say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In the same sentence, we have Samaritan and demon. That's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. And so do you see how the book of Kings can provide a helpful background for the New Testament, our understanding of what was taking place in Jesus' day? This is why the Jews felt as they did. But we still have some questions to answer about this region of Samaria or northern Israel. Um, what would happen to them? In the New Testament, um, the name Israel seems to be reserved for the Jews who are not of mixed ethnicity, who are not worshiping false gods, who are worshiping the, in the temple of Jerusalem. These seem to be the heirs of the promise of David in 2 Samuel 7. But what about the Samaritans? Are they like Ishmael? and Hagar, who were sent away? Are they like Esau and the Edomites? Are they utterly rejected? Do they have no hope? What about the Samaritans? Does God care about them? Did their mixed ancestry and adulterated faith make God judge them irredeemably? Were the Jews right in Jesus' day when they put the Samaritans and demons in the same sentence? Does God love the one who's not from the chosen race. Does God love Samaria? Well, it's an important question because some of us actually might identify with Samaria. Our family tree might not look so good. Our spiritual past might not look so good. We might look a lot more like Samaria than anything else as we look back on our past. So it's, it's important for us to know, does God love Samaria? Does God love the one who's not of the chosen race, the one who is the outcast? And I think there are two reasons why we can answer this with a resounding yes. The first 
is in the Gospel of John chapter 4. There's a story of the woman at the well. Are you familiar with that story? Where Jesus had to pass through the town of Sychar in Samaria. He didn't really have to pass through there. He could have gone around, and most Jews would not stay in the Samaritan village. But there he sits by the well, waiting. And a woman comes up to the well, Samaritan woman, whom a Jew would normally not speak with, no matter how thirsty they were. And he said, can you give me a drink? And the woman shocked says, you know, you a Jew asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? What is going on here? And Jesus said, this is in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Because everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so the Son of God, here he is, offering this Samaritan woman eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty and I will not have to come here and draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman says, I have no husband. Jesus said, You are right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now let's hit the pause button here and look at this woman's life and compare her to Samaria. This Samaritan woman looks a whole lot like Samaria, doesn't she? She's got a completely mixed up, adulterated relationships, family, things are mixed up here. It's a mess. She's had five failed relationships, she's with somebody else, and it kind of looks like Samaria. Samaria has, has this checkered past. And here Jesus is speaking to a woman with a checkered past in Samaria. And so the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Remember the Samaritans' adulterated faith. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He reaffirms the promise is going to come from Jerusalem. The promise flowed through King David, it flowed through Judah, it didn't flow through into Samaria. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who am speaking to you am he. The woman's blown away. She brings the whole Samaritan village out to see Jesus. Samaria is coming to the Son of God who provides salvation. They're somehow receiving the promise that had not flowed through Israel or Samaria. Somehow they're going to receive this promise through Jesus. When Jesus' disciples asked him what's going on, he said, the fields are white with the harvest. Neither mixed up past nor messed up worship 
will keep these Samaritans from receiving the salvation that Jesus has to offer. And then, if we fast forward to Acts chapter 8, did, does anybody know what day today is? It's actually a, a day on the calendar. Pentecost Sunday. It, today is Pentecost Sunday. Yeah, thank you. So today is the day when uh, we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming upon uh, believers for the first time. Now, this is in Acts chapter 2 that this occurs. It, the, the people spill out, out of the upper room. There are 120 people, and the Holy Spirit comes on them, and Peter gives this great message, and over 3,000 come to, to faith on that day. But if you go forward to Acts chapter 8, the same thing happens that happened in Jerusalem happens in Samaria. It's shocking. The Holy Spirit is poured out in Samaria. Uh, first, Philip goes there. Then a couple of the apostles go there. But the, the significant thing is not the people, but the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans for the very first time. How could that happen? They're not of the promise. And so, what about Samaria? Does God care about the outcast? Does God care about the person out of the promise? Does God care about the person with a mixed up family, a messed up faith, uh, the, the background that's not perfect? And I think we can answer that with a yes. No one is beyond redemption. Not me, not you, not our families, not our friends, not our politicians, not our worst enemies. The good news is that Jesus died for all of us. Now, the promise that flowed through, um, if you look at this, the promise that flowed through Abraham, through the, through the uh, patriarchs, through King David, through Jesus, that was offered to the Samaritans and other people that we read about in the book of Acts, is also promised to you and I. You see, it turns out, if we go way back to that promise to Abraham, said, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make a special nation of you. I'm going to just bless your socks off, Abraham, but not just for you alone or for the nation that will come from you alone, but because through you, through this nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was always the plan. It was always the plan to bless everyone through the one the promise came through. The promise wasn't just for the one who received the promise. The promise was for the whole world through a specific person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so now, um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who gives us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And so what we have here is we have an invitation to all people to come to the well, to come to the feast that Jesus has to offer. And he says, you, you're right, you have a messed up past. Jesus didn't say to the woman, you know, you believe everything that's right. He said, no, your, your faith is messed up. You, you, and he pointed out, you have a, a messed up relationships in your interpersonal life. But he still invited her and he wanted her to invite other people because we don't come to Jesus when we're cleaned up. We come to him because we're not cleaned up and we trust him for our future.
So the question for each of us is, will we come? Will we receive that invitation to come to the well? God loves the outcast. He loves us no matter what our background is. And he wants us to receive the hope that we have in Christ, the spirit guaranteeing what is to come. I want to read you the words of the song, and all who thirst will thirst no more. And all who search will find what their souls long for. The world will try, but it can never fill. So leave it all behind and come to the well. Please bow your heads with me. Father, uh, we receive this invitation from you through Christ. And no doubt there are some here that, that need to receive this invitation fully for ourselves that we have maybe never felt that we could be fully forgiven, that we could be free of shame forever, that we could trust you. Father, we pray that, uh, I pray that all of us would receive your invitation. And maybe some of us for the first time here, that we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit the giver of life, that we would live our lives for you. Father, thank you that you are the God of the outcast, but not the God that leaves us as outcasts. We are your children. In the name of Jesus, amen.